Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. Access entry 1023.ps6103, certificate number 35704, Quonset Huts. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Yes, Quonset huts. I said Quonset earlier and you corrected me, Quonset. I've been saying Quonset like Qbert. It may be that Quonset is an acceptable pronunciation think, of Quonset. I think it's if you have Quonset celebrations oh there, yeah, then it's it a Quonset hut. Quonset hut. <laughs> I honestly think in my head I am combining Quonset and Quonset because the word is, um, it would be like Narragansett, right? It's from yeah. somewhere in the eastern... U.S.? Well, and actually Narragansett plays a role in the Quonset <gasps> Hut. Now I'm on the edge of my seat, John. Yes. Like, normally I'm not aware whether there's going to be Narragansett <laughs> in an omnibus entry, and now I do. We were, were jumping ahead, and also we're doing a very un-omnibus thing, which is talking about the thing right away. But Quonset Huts are named that because— Wait, you just said Quonset. The thing you, may, you got mad at me for Quonset. saying. Quonset. Quonset. Let's, Quonset. Let's say Quonset from now on. Quonset. Quonset. Yeah, Quonset. Quonsy. It's from Quonset Point, which is on Narragansett Bay. Oh, so it is probably related to whatever Indian route that is. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure that it is derived from the original language of the uh, of the people of New England. Pretty much which everything. Is not Algonquin, is it? What, what well, would the the, I think be? Algonquin is a family oh, of languages. No, I think I think it is an Algonquin name. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at a map of America, it's just it's you know, misunderstood Native American names all the way down. Have you heard this theory that the name of the state of Oregon is a mystery and it may be a mis, a, like a misreading of the word Wisconsin? <laughs> what? Really? Like, this is not even a joke. <laughs> like Oregon might've been like originally Oreconson. And then there was a map where there was a hyphen and somebody missed the sin. And they thought that the Northwest United States was called Oregon. Oregon, when really it was like somebody misreading Wisconsin. A lot of the problem of confusing Native American uh, place names is that because the the local tribes of the East were moved uh, successively west, 
Right. There are all these. Oregon is the new Wisconsin. <laughs> there's all there's all this sort of like, well, this is what this is actually the language of what had what was upstate New York, but we we forcibly migrated those people to Indiana. When we said you could have Wisconsin, we meant West Wisconsin, which is <laughs> Oregon. Burns, Oregon, which is <laughs> the Aleutian Islands. I would be like if I was an Indian guy, I would be mad if the map was like a hundred percent my people's names and everybody's saying them wrong. Yeah, nobody's thinking about us. Well, I mean, the, it's almost minstrelsy. The fact that our maps are like a hundred percent native <laughs> names that like nobody knows about or can translate or cares about in the Northwest because they you know the encounter with the tribes happened. In, you know, in a lot of ways, the majority of the of that contact happened post the beginning of the United States, yeah. right? A lot of those place names and the tribes remained intact, except, of course, decimated. But yeah. but our place names are really from here. But I mean, if you think about a lot of the Native American residents of Oklahoma, they are from Georgia, or you know, the tribes were were removed, but there were already people there too. It's very confusing. When you pull into a roadside uh, uh, motel and it's called the Tecumseh Motel and it's in and it's in New Mexico, you're like, well, <laughs> warning, they contain no Tecumseh. I guess we spoke too soon when we said this was the omnibus where we get directly to right. Quonset huts. Right. The name Quonset hut is just because they were first manufactured there uh, at the Quonset hut naval air, or I'm sorry. The Quonset. It was, it was from Quonset. It was from Quonset Hut in Rhode Island. Everybody went to the Pizza Hut in Quonset and they called it the Quonset Hut. It was the it, Quonset Point Naval Air Station is where they were first first put slapped together. And so they just got this, they just got called this. It wasn't like the brand. So Quonset Huts are Navy. Uh, originally, it was to fulfill a Navy contract. In 1941, the Navy was looking for uh, the ability to to make or to the ability to ship buildings uh, to far-flung locations, and this is this is immediately before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But but the, it's clear that there the, may be war theaters in our near future. Right? Yeah, the winds of war were were brewing. So the Navy was thinking, how are we going to build uh, stations hither and yon? We need a kind of collapsible, um, you know, prefabricated kind of building to to build little towns. Can I ask a question? Of like I, I think of prefabricated housing as a kind of a post-war phenomenon. So is there, do you know which way the causality goes? We're, like were efficiency experts already thinking of prefabricated buildings and the military glommed onto that? Or does the American post-war Levittown thing owe a lot to wartime and Quonset hut-like technology? It is the latter. Um, although... It was part of the sort of Bauhaus movement, right. the pre-war Bauhaus movement to build, you know, really efficient uh, buildings and housing where the mechanics of the building were visible. You know, there was, it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't dressed up in the same way. It was, it was actually the structure that was part of the, uh, part of the dressing. Le Corbusier said a house is a machine for living in which depresses me every time I hear it. <laughs> well, and there are these uh, these mental ideas of a house being a superior structure. A, a, a house has connotations. Yes. Whereas, and the reason that Quonset huts are called Quonset huts rather than houses is that hut is a, uh, is this inter- like Laurie expectations? Yeah, absolutely. It's this interim. We're not going to give you a house. Don't get us wrong. It's a hut. You get two. What do they say? Two squares and a chair. No. A, a, a cotton or yeah. Two, two cots and a hut. 
<laughs> two cots two, and a hot. Two, three hots and a cot. There we go. Is, yeah. Two cots and a hot would be for a very large. Um, that's like the Gomer Pyle guy from Full Metal Jacket. He needs a second cot. That's right. Uh, like a, at the basic level, you have a shelter, which is kind of a lean-to. And then a hut is, like a hut is a term universally applied to nomad, nomadic people's structures, a yurt or a mud hut or a straw hut. Yeah, I think know. of a hut as kind of a Polynesian kind of a straw hut kind of a thing. But built, built quickly, but, you know, it looks it looks house-like. It's not just a, a bunch of sticks leaning on another stick. But But a teepee is qualifies as a hut, sure. you know, and yeah. they're, they're quite large. Or, so, or even, yeah, African, African, you mentioned mud huts, right? I guess I picture huts as being worldwide. Yeah. Any kind of thing. Jabba the hut. That's Jabba. He's, Jabba he's the in, hut. He's in the desert too. He was a hut until he was digitally manipulated into <laughs> some kind of creature that can walk around Moss Eisley and not a, not a person, not a creature permanently attached to his To, to a chair. Yeah. Every time you make that mistake where you give a, a character a mobility, like it still makes me mad now every time I watch R2-D2 kind of rumbling along and, uh, you know, kind of every time there's a little uneven place in the corridor, he goes, almost falls down. I'm like, this guy can fly. I have seen him fly. Why is he just rolling around Cloud City? It takes a lot of energy to fly. Same with Jabba. Yeah. Like he just likes to sit and eat those little um, calamari things. But. And it takes longer to build a hut than it does to build a shelter. But uh, Wait, but, is that true? Yeah, but a hut... Yeah, I guess it doesn't would. quite qualify as a house, right? Uh, it could be a home. Uh, so Quonset huts have been homes uh, many, many times, but they were not initially uh, a World War II phenomenon. The the Quonset really? hut began life in World War One, and uh, it was originally designed by a guy from the Royal Engineers by the name of Peter Norman Nissen. And they were originally called Nissen Huts. This is the the, the British Army. This is a, the British Army guy by the name of Peter Norman Nissen. Nissen Huts. Nissen. And they were Nissen Huts. And in World War I, they manufactured more than 100,000 Nissen Huts because they were doing the exact same thing. They were invading a foreign land. They needed shelter. Got to get in out of the rain. They got to get in out of the rain. They, they need a kind of... Um, they need to be able to ship, manufacture them and ship them from England and set them up wherever they, wherever battles were sold. So back behind the trenches, there's a bunch of officers in Nissen huts. And Nissen huts need to be easy to manufacture without using a ton of resources, right? Because steel is rationed during all these wars. It needs to be preserved for battleships and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But steel is the, is sort of the lightest and most readily available material to make to make these things. They didn't have aluminum for they their and huts? They didn't, or it was, it would have been a lot more expensive, expensive but they yeah. did they wouldn't want to use wood for it because think about a hundred thousand huts made out of wood. Expensive. It's harder, harder to ship, heavier yeah. per, per, you know, square foot of coverage you get. And did these look like, so when I picture a Kwanzaa, I don't know if you want, it, it's a, Go for, ahead. for the future links who haven't seen it, it's as if you took like a culvert pipe right. and buried it half in the ground. Yes. So you've got a half circle, a semicircle coming out of the ground. And it's really just, uh, what, it's like a half tube of, of steel? It's a half tube, yeah. It's uh, usually made of corrugated steel. It's um, Originally, it was sort of cheap steel, but then, because 
most of these temporary buildings, you know, you start a war. Let's say we started a war. You're <laughs> this not going to. This is not hypothetical. You're not going to start a war with <laughs> Iran next week and it leads to the end of civilization. You're not going to. You never think, I'm starting a protracted war where my troops are going to be living in substandard drafty housing for, let's say, five plus years. You should think that, right? Uh, typically, that's how long wars that's what happens. last. But what you always think is, we're going to rush in there, we're going to beat the beat the bad guys and get out of there. Mission accomplished. Banner. Uh, banner on the boat, like six months after we went in, and that's it. Hands, you know. So even washed. with the huge military budgets, often infrastructure is like lagging because everybody thought it would be a quick win? That's, that's the problem. And I, I think the more you... Um, the more you prepare for a war, uh, the more depressing it is. Like, who's, who's <laughs> everybody wants to just rush in, drop some bombs, and get out. Nobody's like, in year four, like, are they going to get tired of the chicken a la king and want, like, some kind of stew? We're going to have to make a lot of cigarettes. But at first, it, they used cheap steel, and, the, and over time, the Nissan huts rusted. So they started to use galvanized mm -hmm. steel in order to kind of keep them. But Nissan huts were extremely successful. Um, well, and yeah, they won British won World War II, World War One. They did almost entirely because of their huts. Nissan huts are one and zero. Pizza Hut, uh, I don't know if they're undefeated. And there were a couple of versions of them. Um, so during the interwar years, they, uh, you know, they're not super pleasant as as dwellings, but they're very useful as sheds, hangars. Um, you, you'd have to kind of paste a few of them together to make a hangar big enough for a plane. But you could put Jeeps in them put or, Jeeps. or crates of materiel. But also after the war, you could put tractors. You could use them for, and, and there are- Like civilian stuff? Civilians. They, they, they dot the English countryside um, because, and there, I don't think are very many remaining in France and Belgium, but, but they were used, they were kind of surplused after the war and people, because they are transportable, you can take them apart just as well as you put them together- there was actually a contest that Nissan Hut was designed to be assembled by six men in four hours. But there were competitions between groups of soldiers and the, the record, what they, I don't know where the record is recorded, <laughs> but the record is like, uh, like an hour and a half to put together an entire Nissan. And it's six men? Oh, uh, wait, was it six or four? Well, it was six men was the was the way it was designed. I don't know how many men. For it might hour have been, and a half record? It might have been like an Amish barn raising where the entire <laughs> battalion came. That's impressive, though. These things are, I don't know if Nissan huts are the, roughly the size of the Quonset huts I'm picturing, but they're big. Yeah, they're big. Um, they tend to be, Nissan huts were about 35 feet by 60 feet originally, so quite wide. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and those seem low, maybe lower than ours. It's a, well, actually, they were the, the semicircle of a Nissan hut actually kind of came all the way around. So it wasn't just a half circle. It oh, had it comes a little, back in at the bottom. A little bit back in. Um, That's very attractive. So it, uh, Nissan huts are are a little more elegant than a Quonset hut. I'm, I'm, this is a very sexy hut you're it describing. It is. It's more like a hobbit hole. <laughs> it looks like, uh, you know, a bunch of little woodland creatures living in a log or something. It seems a little romantic yeah, if it curves back in. It's like, a, it's one of those... Our, our, our Quonset huts are bulges. They're kind of tumors on the landscape. They are. They, these were more like uh, like Yule logs. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, they're all they're very merry. These places. <laughs> what are they? What are any of these places like inside? What should I picture inside them? They can be finished inside in a very in a multitude of ways. So Nissan huts were often finished 
in inside with horizontally corrugated steel so that there was a certain kind of, you know, what the trouble with them is insulation. In colder climates in England, they feel damp and drafty and cold because there's multiple pieces of this corrugated pressed uh, metal and they're bolted together at very, but you know, the wind is getting Plus, in. Yeah. You know, what's really good at conducting cold, cold heat out and cold in steel. steel. Yeah. But they were, when they were used in North Africa, um, they were considered, you know, Too muggy hot. Yeah. and hot. You're just baking inside. So there are a lot Basically, of attempts. British people complain they're about v- the weather. Very complainy people. Yeah. <laughs> I so, thought our tea break was four 30. It's five o'clock. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout they uh uh Often they were finished with wood. They they were packed in wooden crates, so the wood of the crate Ooh. would be repurposed as floor. I like this Bauhaus touch that they, you can IKEA the crate into the floor. Yeah, they would they would pour a concrete base sometimes. They there were a lot of different uh, oh, but you could also just build it straight up on the ground. Are there ends like you have to have a circular like it seems like you it would be hard to get it airtight if there's a a metal piece that has to match the curvature of the roof. The circular ends were usually plywood, but mm-hmm. you see them built with a lot of different materials, including brick um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, cement, like different, because a lot of these things are being put up by the Royal Engineers or the Army Corps of Engineers. They're getting, you know, they're, um, there's always somebody on the ground that's got a better idea. You see them a lot of times with dormer windows, so you'll have this this half dome Fancy. and then dormers or doors in the side of them that have little entryways. Can I tell you my only time spent in a Quonset hut? Yeah. This was a Quonset hut that had stained glass windows. It was a mobile church? It was a mobile church. When, I, when my family moved to South Korea in the 80s, every Sunday morning, we hopped on a city bus and went to church on the army base. Yeah. Um, and they, the, the chapel on the army post at that time was a Quonset hut that had been nicely outfitted with carpeting and pews and a, whatever's at the front of a church, uh, some kind of the, dais that's at the yeah, front of a church. dais. Well, let's the, call it a dais. Is there, there must be a religious name. Yeah, there is. The it's the nave, pulpit. The narthex. Yeah, it's where, oh, yeah, the pulpit. Yeah. I don't think it's the narthex. But they had, st- they had actually put these kind of dormer things in the sides, and they were stained glass depictions of Bible scenes, but in the sides of a corrugated metal <laughs> quadrant. And it was... You know, unabashedly, just I think from the outside, it may have still had the green yeah. army paint color. Almost certainly it did. And it probably was made into a church at the time um, because Quonset huts were used for barracks, but they were used also as hospitals. They were used um, 
as bakeries and as isolation wards. You I mean, if you got, latrines if you have to in them. set stuff up in a hurry, like anything you need quickly, it's going to be a Kwanzaa because and otherwise it's going to take months to build. Right? What does an army need more quickly than a church? And, <laughs> and a bake. An <laughs> army travels on its soul. <laughs> Um, you, but do the, want, you do want God on your side. You do. If you're declaring well, war. Well, wait a minute. You have God on your side. That's the first thing you secure before you even start a war. <laughs> I don't know if that's like, true. like, send a message to God. Whose but, side is he on? But I mean, the makeup of the modern military, lots of uh, Southerners, lots of Midwesterners, lots of African-Americans, you know, there are a bunch of church groups. It's uh, disproportionately a religious part of the of the American public. Right. A chaplain travels with uh, with any group. And and I think probably in the in World War One there would have been just a generally greater amount of religiosity as there would have been in World War II. And by religiosity, you mean like Church of England. Like, <laughs> yeah, like exactly. The, like, oh, there sure, would not sure, be a sure. rabbi oh, or, or anything. Sure. Like, there, there was one kind of acceptable religion and maybe a Catholic priest. That's right. The Nissen huts were super popular with, uh, because World War I was obviously the first world war. And How do you so, figure? Well, uh, because it involved in nations name. from around the world. And the, the British Empire at the time had, still had tendrils uh, everywhere. And so you find Nissen huts in... Tendrils? Tendrils, yes. <laughs> That's not how they would like to think of it. The, uh, let's call the it... The bad guys uh, have like tentacles and tendrils. Guy. The good guys have... What do we have? Colonies, supply lines, allies. That's right, allies. <laughs> Although we don't want to uh, besmirch whatever appendages our futurelings might have. That's they true. Might, Maybe tendrils like, is the most respectful thing ah, you could say in the future. How wonderful that they had tendrils. They understand tendrils. These are my people. So so these were used quite, uh, you know, they, there were a lot of them that ended up kind of far-flung worldwide. And, and like... Uh, like so many industrial products that end up kind of diasporing, diasporing, diaspora. Sure, sure that's a word. <laughs> um, they get they get put to many purposes, and there are obviously places in the world where a Nissan hut would be the most formidable structure in in your community. If you're in the middle of some, you know. Uh, Cow town in Australia, right? That's that's probably as good as it gets. Well, and these do end up playing a large role in Australia. Oh, is that we'll, true? Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. So after the uh, so during the war, uh, Peter Nissen actually patents the design of the <sighs> Nissen hut. Profiteer, and he donated to the crown. Peter, he makes a he makes a good uh, a good return on his investment, and he's given uh, he's given the order of the. Crown, whichever one. The order it, of the purple <laughs> velvet queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. The order, the order of the of the uh, the the violet ember. The order <laughs> of the royal slingshot. <laughs> and he gets a he gets a modest stipend, but but uh, but he incorporates his company, and they continue to kind of make them in the interwar years. Although they're not, you know, they're they're being sold as prefabricated buildings. Not nobody's nobody's racing to buy them as um, something to add to the manor. But at the beginning of the Second World War, Nissen surrenders the rights to the patent as a gesture, just oh, as you suggested, good. to support the war effort. Thank you, Peter. At which point this patented design is starts to be manufactured kind of with different versions manufactured by all of the allies. And uh, there was a version called the Iris Hut, which was... Which was, and the thing about the Nissen hut is it was 
built on a kind of, there was a tubular frame to it, which, um, in the, in later versions, they hadn't quite worked out the dimensions of it. And so the Iris hut, uh, they, they made quite a few of them, but it turned out the first time that there was a heavy snow, the Iris hut just collapsed in on itself. And in fact, looking for a picture of the Iris hut, and they made they made them in profusion. They being the Americans? No, the British. This is the British. Okay. Uh, you can't really even find a picture of the Iris, Iris Hut because none survived. Such a huge failure that it's been scrubbed down the memory hole. Yeah, I think there are like six of them left in the world. There was a version of it called the Romney Hut, which was which was more successful. And there are Romney huts all over um, the British territories. Surely, there's a joke there. It's- yeah, well, you, you'd be the think, one to make it. Doesn't Romney have a kid named Hut? <laughs> Isn't that one of his 30 sons? Hey, it's Hut Romney. Hut Romney. We left him on top of the car. Every one-syllable word is now a Romney yeah, son. Plop Romney and All, Romney. Every two-syllable word you can make in English is a Palin kid, and every one-syllable word is a Romney kid. Look, it's Grop, Plicks, and Blop. <laughs> but the Quonset Hut was the American version of it, and the original contract to build the Quonset Hut uh, went to the George Fuller Company, which was famous as a steel construction company. George Fuller was the basically the inventor of the American skyscraper. Ah. So the American skyscraper, of course, was a result partly of the Otis Elevator Company devising a safety elevator that could go higher than three or four floors. Because if you're just doing stairs, you don't want a 10-story building. But also steel, right? But also Masonry steel. buildings would collapse above a certain point. That's right. And so the, the, the development of steel, you know, steel beams, uh, which, which jet fuel cannot melt. Is that true? No. It's really, I don't know. That's Opinion the one, is, is divided. Is that the one thing you know about steel beams? <laughs> Uh, George Fuller ended up, uh, he, the George Fuller company built the Flatiron Building, built Penn Station, built the Macy's Building, built the New York Times Building and the Plaza Hotel. Like they were the major construction company of New York City. As Manhattan goes upward, it's yeah. all George Fuller. And so Fuller had a lot of experience working with steel. He moved to Chicago or the company, rather the company, or you know, he moved the company to Chicago because that was where the real skyscraper stuff was happening. Mm. That was exciting skyscraper town. That toddling town. Because Chicago allowed for buildings with a, with a truly steel construction, um, which, is, which is to say like masonry buildings are supported by their outside walls. Mm-hmm. And, and in New York, you could use steel within that structure, but the, but the weight was still sort of borne by the, by the masonry. Chicago was the first city to allow uh, the, the steel to support the structure and have the masonry be a facade. I always wondered why so many of those early pioneering skyscrapers were Midwestern. And I guess a lot of it is regulatory. It huh? was regulatory. If you, if you think about, there's a building in Chicago. Um, it's the first one where you see a really tall building that doesn't have seven foot thick walls at the base. And, you know, a lot of those early skyscrapers, when you walk in the door, you're walking through a whole sorry, kind of corridor through the right. the masonry. It's funny to imagine New York being like, okay, you can use this newfangled steel, but we're still going to require eight foot brick walls <laughs> just to get, it's like the boss that's like, would you print out that email? Would you, in fact, would you print out all the emails for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, New York architects were real snobs about it. Oh, it's also a look, a look thing. Yeah. And so Fuller was the first guy to use steel beams as floor joists. 
and all of the you know all of the local architects were they were scandal and i think part of it was that steel was an untested material and they thought well it'll rust it won't last right that was the criticism of it so it was so he was a pioneer that famous thing about steel <laughs> that it's kind of weak <laughs> do these guys even know the metaphorical it's a purpose metaphor of for steel weak weak uh, but fuller also was the I guess is credited with the invention of the modern contractor because as time went on, so he, he died. Just found a lazy man and was like, Hey, <laughs> you're six hours late. You can be a contractor. Fuller died and his son took over and his son went through this whole sort of early, uh, 20th century, late, late 19th, early 20th century sort of capitalism game where he put a bunch of industrialists on his board. He bought a bunch of unrelated companies. He built a trust, then the whole thing was taken from him and ruined. The members of the board skimmed off all the money uh, and then fire sold the, the shares as the company collapsed. But they were bought by, they were bought back by George Fuller's son and he regained control of the company. But inventing contracting, what he did was took over every single aspect of building these structures except for the design wasn't interested in architecting, uh, instead was like, no, we'll take care of everything. You just bring us the plans. You call us. Yeah, that's right. And so that was the company that took the initial contract to build these Quonset huts. I think it was within a month of the contract being awarded, they were already churning them out um, in the thousands. I wonder if they meant to call them Quonset huts or if the box just said Quonset on it. I think that's what might have happened. I mean, it's just like Amerigo Vespucci. People were like, <laughs> I guess it's called America. I don't know. That's the only word on here. And in the United States, or the United States alone, we made between 150 and 170,000 Quonset huts during the war. Wow. And they went all around the world. And meanwhile, the, the British are also manufacturing Nissan huts and Romney huts and sending them everywhere. So they became almost a symbol of the Allied war effort where you would normally put a tent. We were erecting Quonset huts. Yeah, that's right. I do picture, I mean, I, we were probably still erecting tents, right? Well, sure. If you think of the TV show MASH. I guess they, the M is for mobile. Right. Like those guys are, right. ma- ma- I mean, in the show, it's not mobile at all. They stay there for 11 seasons. But in theory, that hospital, I guess, might have to set up somewhere else if the front moves, right? There were several episodes of MASH where there was a lot of hullabaloo of like, the enemy is advancing and we have to pack up and move. But you know, in a sitcom, wait, do they ever move once? Is there an episode where they move? Oh yeah, for sure. They they move, but but it was a secondary plot to Major Houlihan uh, (laughs) needing to write home to her husband (laughs) to confess her affair. So it's not, you don't remember it as like the big, but they, they move, you know, down the road to a place that also looks, looks like a valley looks outside like Malibu. of Santa Barbara, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> which all of Korea apparently looks like. You know, I got to say, I think I may have said this on the show. My first morning in Korea, I like opened the hotel room window and I was like, these mountains look just like the mountains of helicopter flies over in MASH. Do they really? They kind of do. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Good job picking the hills behind Malibu or whatever. Yeah, that's kind of killer. Uh, We made the Quonset hut in a lot of different dimensions. The original one was 16 by 36. My church was bigger than that, for sure. Which also had, just had an eight foot radius, right? It wasn't that big. The most common size was 20 by 48. So 10 foot ceilings. But they were as, made as big as 40 by 100 feet. I feel like that my my church would be, the ceilings were 
higher than 10 feet. Higher than 10 feet. So and it I gotta say, one of the big ones. In the early 80s, they tore that down and actually built a brick chapel there, which is still there to this day. Although the base is closing down there. They're giving that valuable real estate back to the Koreans that are moving out of town. Yeah, there were a lot, there were a lot more sort of defunct military bases in the 70s and 80s than there are now. That was a that was a thing that we realized or the US government realized, hey, we've got all this land just laying around. It's covered with old rusty Quonset huts. Let's let's flip some of this real estate. In fact, Narragansett point there, Quonset Point, the naval air station there is kind of a derelict place. Now. Oh really? Yeah, it's a half abandoned military base. It's not it's not a pretty place. Are there still Quonset huts at Quonset Point? One of the places that Quonset huts survive is in Australia. They became, or, or Nissan huts, they became a kind of a totemic structure because our, Australia in a lot of places is a temperate country. And so you're not beset with the kind of weather that you would get in England or Rhode Island. And so a Quonset hut or a Nissan hut could survive for much longer. And this is agricultural kind of uses or? There are a lot of communities of Quonset huts. Well, there were a ton of them built immediately after the war because there was all this cheap housing. And around the world, there was a kind of post-war housing crunch that preceded the post-war housing boom that we think of as having produced places like Levittown. But, you know, people coming home from war and suddenly they have no place to... Live? Right. But a lot of soldiers returning from war, in some cases, uh, setting up families with what were, uh, with their war brides, who were people that they married either right before they went off to war or married when they came home from leave. So you have these very young families who have no place to live. And partly that was a factor of if you returned to San Francisco, well, a lot of the housing that was emptied by people going off to war was filled by people who migrated to San Francisco to work to in the work war in, industry. Yeah. So you had, I mean, this was a period of great migration in the United States, people coming out of the Southern cities and moving to Seattle and, and, uh, Chicago to work in the factories and then deciding to stay. Um, if you were, if you had a good job working at Boeing or, or at McDonnell Douglas or rather Douglas, at the time. Yeah. Why are you going to move back and to, or Douglas? <laughs> why are you going to go back to sharecropping when you could stay out here? So young families would move to big cities. And in fact, uh, one of the most famous Quonset hut communities was a place called Roger Young Village, which was built in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. <laughs> really? The Griffith family had donated this land to the city of Los Angeles as a park. So it already was a park. It was a park, but then the city of Los Angeles built this enormous Quonset Hut community, Roger Young Villager, RYV, in Griffith Park to the consternation of the Griffith family who said, no, we did not intend this to be public housing. We wanted this to be a park for the city of Los Angeles. At one point, there were 750 Quonset huts in Roger Young Village, 5,000 young families living there. The idea being that a single large Quonset hut would be divided in the middle and there'd be two separate apartments, but they'd be like two-bedroom apartments. And people had gardens, they planted around their Quonset huts. Houses themselves didn't have refrigerators, they had ice boxes, but there were, you know, there were a lot of the amenities of home. I was looking to see where, where Roger Young Village is today. It's the zoo. It's the zoo. If you've ever been to the zoo. So it, la it was there from immediately after the war into the mid-50s and gradually 
you know, people moved out and into the houses that were being built by, by this and post-war this is, construction. And this is what really happened. Suburbanization moved all these, you know, nice white families coming, new families coming home from the war out to the burbs because now the cities were a little suspect. They started to get suspect, yeah. I mean, in the, in the mid-50s, they were still bustling. There, white flight was a thing that began there in the, in the late 50s, but there wasn't like the kind of racial element to it. Oh, until, is that right? Until, that was later. The, until the civil rights movement. Huh. But then they tore, yeah, they tore them down in the city and the Griffith family was still like, hello, still, we still want this to be a park. And so they built the zoo there. <laughs> and there's a little corner of what had been Roger Young Village that's actually that freeway interchange that happens right next to it. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But in uh, New South Wales, there's a community called Belmont North, which was built in a similar fashion to house returning soldiers and their families. But those Quonset huts took on a kind of neighborhood character that people wanted to preserve. And over time, they built 50 of them. Over time, a few have been torn down, but there are still 33 of them, which are privately owned and regarded as kind of enviable mid-century housing for the people that live in Belmont North. It's a coveted neighborhood. Is it because they're nice inside or is it just because that round shape you can't get anywhere else? So it's kind of a novelty. They've been fixed up. Over time, you have they have wood paneling inside and and full bathrooms and are 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 maintained and and now I think sell they're you know they're competitively sold. Somebody tried to make or the 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 Belmont North was proposed as a historic district. The proposal, I guess, was was rejected. But I guess there's kind of a patriotic thing too, you know, for if it reminds you of. Wartime Australia and our, you know, patriotic service members who lived there. Right. There is a, do you remember the 80s kind of mass hypnosis where people thought geodesic dome houses were the next thing? I mean, there is kind of a thing where weird shaped houses become a kind of a novelty item among people who can afford them. Well, Buckminster Fuller actually plays a, uh, like a tangential role in this whole story. Is that because true? Because during the war, there were, there were contracts for this kind of transportable housing, easily erectable housing. And Buckminster Fuller, true to his- I bet he had an idea. True to his nature, did have an idea and had a, a, a housing unit called the Dymaxion Deployment Unit, <laughs> which was much more like a yurt. Uh, it was circular. It, it looked like the top of a grain silo. And- it was also he, made of steel. He called everything Dymaxion. Yeah, He right. just invented a word to mean 
my cool thing I invented. My cool thing. And he right. would just do Dymaxion cars and Dymaxion everything. And they actually manufactured a considerable number of Dymaxion deployment units, but it it didn't catch on the same. It wasn't quite as as uh, useful as a Quonset in the sense that they were they were housing units more than. I mean, a, a Quonset hut is so multi-purpose. Yeah, do anything, and also a lot cheaper to build than a Bucky a Bucky ball. And four hours. I mean, it's pr- probably hard to beat efficiency of of throwing up a Quonset hut. Right. Although there was a there was a version of the Quonset hut called the Jamesway hut, which was not made of steel because it was designed for Arctic conditions. And so, what the Jamesway hut was uh, was the the ribs of the structure, it looks like a Quonset hut, but mm-hmm. the ribs of the structure were wood, laminated sort of wood uh, arches. And then the hut itself was made of insulated blankets, basically. It was layers and layers of insulation <laughs> that you would just stretch tight over this, uh, over this wood superstructure. And then the floor of the building would be the pallets that the that the whole structure came in. And they don't have to worry about snow and ice? I mean, I assumed insulation had to insulate something. I didn't know insulation could insulate itself. Yeah, the, the My many... My mind is blown. The many layers of kind of wax impregnated and uh, and glass, you know, like yeah, shredded fiberglass. glass, fiberglass, covered with cotton, covered with felt, covered with all this stuff. It was easily foldable and packable. But once stretched over this thing, you could heat it and it would, it was a, a really great structure. The only, the only steel you used was just sort of in the bolts. Um, and those, I remember those in Alaska, they survived for years as sort of Arctic housing, a, a super efficient have, design. You guys have igloos. You don't need that. Well, you guys have Dymaxion uh, snow house. It's a lot which is harder. What I call an igloo. It's harder to, I mean, an igloo, you don't really heat with a pot bellied stove. You know, it's, you're in there and you're in your, you've got your furs and stuff. Are you saying something could go wrong if you, if you heated the inside of your igloo too much? I think if you're in there, like, like, uh, loading and unloading your cannons, an igloo might be a little, little small, but there are tons of Quonset huts in Alaska because Alaska was a territory then. And this, and it was regarded as the first line of defense. Is anybody still making them? Like the military, does the military need new Quonset huts? Well, the military doesn't. But there is a new community in the great city of Detroit called True North. And True North is artists, colony, cool kid, sort of planned community where Quonset Hut-like structures inspired by Quonset Huts in the sense that they're using pressed steel, although it's not that same sort of corrugated steel. It's much larger corrugations. And they are, they're not true semicircles. They look more like greenhouses. They have flat walls on the side and then a domed roof. And a lot of, and the, the end caps are glass rather than plywood. Sure, for your grow operation. That's right. <laughs> um, but one of the main complaints, actually, of using Quonset huts as housing is that there, it's really tough to figure out where to put the couch, <laughs> right? Like nothing goes up against the wall, rounded wall, because you've got the, you know, you, it's really only the the middle that you can walk in, and then toward the sides you can have chairs. But well, somebody's just got to be marketing furniture that goes up at a <laughs> like a seventy degree angle. 
I mean, it's, if, you, if you have a low bed, you can tuck it in there and, and just kind of crawl in. But the, this new community in Detroit, the, the True North, they've modified the, the design so that the walls are more vertical. There are some buildings within the community that look very much like Quonset huts. They're, you know, they're tall and, and they're finished inside with wallboard and shelving and so forth. They're like pretty nice pads. It's a tiny house fad, but also you're aware of the shipping container architecture style. So it seems, it's, yeah, it seems eco-friendly. Yeah. You use every part of the buffalo. That's right. I was thinking about, this, like when you were mentioning how they're made of corrugated metal. I mean, I remember the first time I was in Reykjavik, I was just shocked at how the whole town appeared to have been built out of corrugated metal because, you know, there's no, it's a country with no wood. The Vikings cut down all the trees or something and uh, it's a terrible climate. So you, it needs to be something resilient. So they've essentially built this town out of gaily painted colored metal, you know, corrugated metal. And nowadays I walk through neighborhoods of Seattle and it's starting to look like Reykjavik. This is the hip new siding now, right? It is. is it's so easy to manufacture and galvanized. It's, it's it, kind of weatherproof. It'll last forever. So maybe, uh, maybe we're getting back to Quonset huts. Maybe that once we, uh, you know, get back to the circular shape, we're going to have a city, uh, back to a city of bulges like we used to. If you think about the look of a shanty town, it is largely salvaged corrugated metal from various other applications. In fact, I'm trying to think now, what application does corrugated metal have except <laughs> building a shanty town? Yeah, where did the shanties get them? <laughs> what What are they salvaging them from? I mean... A corrugated battleship. So corrugating metal obviously gives it a lot more strength because... If yeah. you were just making it out of sheets of metal, it would it would easily bend. You understand that a sun chip has more structural integrity than a, a, a than a lace than a ruffles chip, and a ruffles has more integrity than a lace chip. You you know anybody who's ever eaten chips knows what corrugation does. You are blowing my mind with the with the structural architecture of various chips. You've never seen a shantytown made of sun chips. I guess I haven't. Although they all do look like rusty sun chips. Piles. Yeah, why are they making all that corrugated metal? So corrugated metal has a pretty long history. It was invented in the 1820s um, by a guy named Henry Palmer, and it was always a building material. The point of it was it had a, this, it had a greater tensile strength. It was easily manufacturable. Like it, you could use rolling dies to press it. This guy's eating a sun chip one day, and he's like, and he's like, my warehouse should be made of this. This is genius. But it was a siding material and a roofing material for utilitarian buildings. It was not intended to be part of a, a super cool condo project in downtown Seattle. It was for warehouses. It's a warehouse on the docks yeah. or a barn or something. And when you think about corrugated metal as it appears in the world, yeah, it's always it's always a, a new barn material or a, or, a, or a wharf kind of application. And so shanty towns are the result of salvaging this material from probably buildings that were built pre-war buildings that were, you know, that are already tumbling down. But as the building falls into the ground, you can go pick up the sheets of metal and they're still, they still have integrity. That's a good tip for people living in a post-apocalyptic future. That's, well, they're probably listening to this show in, protected from the acid rain by their galvanized If, you, uh, if you're roofs. getting rained on right now, please, we beg you, go build a Quonset hut. And that concludes Quonset Huts, entry 1023.PS6103, 
certificate number 35704, in the omnibus. Now, uh, if you don't have Quonsadets, you certainly do not have social media, but we did. Now, wait a minute. Can we say that for sure? What if futurelings are living in an in a social media-rich environment? They're in a virtual Ready Player One kind of world. That's right. They could be 100% uh, like intelligences that are that are confined to a kind of matrix. You just yeah, you just are your social media avatar yeah. in the future. Like That's there right. is no uh, there is no other world. In what, fact, why do you need a corporeal form? At first, there was no other media. So they didn't have to call it social media anymore. And then there was just no other existence. Yeah, we're just in the imagination of a, of a super being, which is all we ever were. So before we inhabited our social media avatars full time, John and I wasted about an hour a day. Did you say that's about right? <sighs> no, more. Oh, wait a minute. Is it, is it included? I spend maybe more time playing Threes, my phone-based video game than I do on that, social media. That now sponsors the show. Uh, yeah, no gaming time. Social media time only. Uh, Maybe an hour yeah, a day. an hour probably. That's awful. Can you imagine spending an hour a day on something so awful? I think you spend more than an hour a day and you're just underselling it. I bet we both spend an hour and a half a day. Yikes. That's a real wake-up call. Like, you know how many how many hours a day I spend exercising? Uh, less? It's pretty close to zero. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking this the other day. I was... I, I was thinking about like all the disorganized photos in my computer, right? Like 15 years worth of unsorted photos. A lot of times somebody will be doing something. I'll take 15 pictures of it and I don't need a single one or maybe I only need one. And I was like, where would I, I mean, I'd like to get, I'd like to go and just sort through all those photos, but when would I ever find the time? <laughs> and, and as you're saying this, you are sorting through fleeting internet photos. Yeah. Hours and hours of it. And I, oh, and I was just lamenting, like, how do I get off social media? It's such a, it's such a toxic thing. It's like, go sort through your photos, dude. If you did it for an hour and a half, like you have a, a tight little book. It might be the same itch, you know? Have you had the thing where you're actually sitting on your computer being like, why am I here? Yes. Scroll. Why am I here? <laughs> yes. Why am I here? Like, like maybe scrolling more will help the why am I here? Nope. 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 Still, still not happy. But do you why ever, am I here? Do you put your phone down in disgust? Get up, walk around the chair, sit back down and pick up your phone. <laughs> Futurelings, we're probably singing to the choir, aren't we? Uh, but in our day, you could find us doing these awful things at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter and in John's case, Instagram. Uh, jointly, we were at Omnibus Project. Uh, on Facebook, the least toxic thing on Facebook was the delightful Futurelings uh, group. Actually, the least toxic thing on Facebook. I can confirm that. You've seen every other thing on Facebook? Yes. And, uh, and this is top five? Yes. Maybe even number one? I would say number one. Uh, they're talking a lot about the size of moose today. That's a, that's a longstanding meme. You once upon a time said that moose were bigger than you thought. Now a lot of people confirm that. People are getting their shirts. I like that uh, we'll do a, a, an entry about something, and then six months later people will see a headline and be like, hey, just wanted to update you on uh, the bodies of Mount Everest. Or that lemonade guy with lemonade coming out of his nose or whatever. I like that too. You and know, we'll get an update. When we uh, start doing a kind of addenda show. Uh, some appendices. Some appendices. We can revisit some of those old apps. I am looking forward to doing that because there there have been up, there have been advances in the fields of 
moose sizing and smoot measuring and uh, Everest dying. There surely have. And we have, and we need to keep the future uh, up to date on that. We surely do. Uh, so check out the Futurelings. You can send us uh, email, a kind of an electronic uh, missive that could come to us at theomnibusproject@gmail.com. You could send us actual artifacts of any kind. John's trying to um, streamline his life, but for some reason he still wants you to send him your old uh, Bakelite radios and National Park ashtrays. I do. To Omnibus Project, care of P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings from our vantage point, living here in our homes made of wood and plaster. Nothing corrugated but our chips. Um, we are absolutely squandering resources and one day you will think back you will be sitting there with your robotic owl on your shoulder wondering what it would have been like to see an actual owl let's just piss them off like i i think i left the shower running for like five minutes today while i shaved sorry on my way here uh to my to the basement of my own house i shot two owls (laughs) are they extinct my bad the thing is seeing them in life isn't really that great because they hide you you don't it's not like they sit on your shoulder uh, whereas a robot owl will sit on your shoulder. If futurelings are robot owls, uh, I apologize for killing so many of your forebears. What if they're the bronze robot owl from the original Clash of the Titans? Oh, that would be such a cool world to that live in. That would be cool. To live in to live in Clash of the Titans world where there were monsters, but they were all weird claymation they're all, monsters. They're all like Will Vinton, oh, California oh, raisin oh, monsters. Oh. <laughs> and the people kind of have to swipe their swords at them, but not cross the midpoint of the screen because <laughs> that would get to the claymation part. Swiping, you can see the actors swiping their swords just up at the sky. <laughs> Uh, We have no idea how long this wasteful and pernicious society survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Uh, When it does come, we will be sheltering under rusty corrugated metal until the last of our species withers up and dies. But this recording, like all our recordings, this actual one, because this may happen within the hour. I shouldn't have left the water out. (laughs) Um... This recording, like all our recordings, could be our final word. Let's hope not. If Providence allows, we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.